Super Talk Mississippi media production. What if everyone was turning their head to look at you with a brand new Flowmaster exhaust system from Exhaust Pro in Macomb on Georgia Avenue? Cruise in style with Exhaust Pro of Macomb on Georgia Avenue. The Rebel Report from Super Talk Mississippi with Brian Scott Rippey and Colin Brister. Listen carefully. What is up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Colin Brister. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this Wednesday, November 20th edition of the Rebel Report podcast. A uh, lot to get into today, some football stuff. They had availability yesterday, though no one really knew about it. We'll get into as to why and that. Uh, Ole Miss beat Seattle in hoops last night. We got the LB's pick'em results. Uh, some other stuff to get into. But, yeah, what's up, man? Not much. It wasn't uh, much of a basketball game, and then Ole Miss just took the last six minutes of the game off. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll get into why that was the case. I thought Kermit Davis had an interesting reason as to why that happened, and uh, it was a rough about eight, really about a seven eight minute stretch there to end the game for Ole Miss, uh, but it also served as some confirmation uh, as to I guess what some guys' roles are and probably what they'll be. You're only four games into a season, but there were a few dudes that didn't do themselves very many favors last night. Uh, we got a Blake Henson update. We got uh, some other stuff from Kermit. So he had a uh, I guess for a November Tuesday night game against a team from the. Pacific Northwest, he had a uh, he had a fairly interesting press conference. So I guess we can uh, let's just get right into it. There we'll go basketball first because uh, that's really kind of really the only pressing thing going on this week with there no, being no football game. I've got uh, uh, Drew Hill on the podcast today. He covers Memphis basketball for the Daily Memphian, um, the kind of startup media outlet. There, I uh, it's kind of one of those things again. As of this recording, I haven't talked to him. I'm going to talk to him right after this and. Uh, get add that into the podcast, so that should be good stuff today. Uh, but yeah, Ole Miss win sixty five to fifty two. Uh, they were up twenty eight points with eleven minutes to go in the game. I think it was like 50. that's a rough time if you bet the rebel. Yeah, that is. Uh, they were up, I guess, fifty two twenty four, and then really things just kind of imploded. Not imploded, but really things got away from them after that. I mean, they gave up twenty four points for the first twenty nine minutes of the game, and then for the final what? 11 minutes, they gave up 28 points. Um, most of that was a product of who was in the game, so they got up big. Uh, Kermit took you know, a lot of his main, I say main guys. I mean, Buffett still played a little bit down the stretch. Rodriguez still played a little bit down the stretch. Hey, you know, Brian Tyree, Devontae Shuler uh, did not, but he put, he basically for the last like five, six minutes, he had a lineup of, I think, Franco Miller at point guard, uh, let's see, who did I have down? They had Antavian Column at the three, Curry at the five, Buffett at the four for part of it, Rodriguez, I think, at the three, and then they had Bryce Williams in there, some too. So some combination of that for the last six minutes. And the game really just got away from Ole Miss. I mean, uh, Seattle closed the game on a 17-2 run. Ole Miss only scored once in the last six minutes of the game. They gave up a bunch of points. They really weren't able to do anything offensively. To be completely truthful, I had gone down to the uh, media room for the last six minutes and started writing, so I wasn't paying that close attention. But then you kind of look up for the last three, four minutes uh, watching on the television there in that room, and it had really gotten close. I was kind of like, holy shit, it got to 13 points. Kermit came in after the game. He was uh, he was pretty upset, but basically what he outlined it is he said, yeah, I did this basically against my better judgment. But I left those guys in the game, and uh, he basically was like, this served as confirmation that uh, the, why these guys have some of the roles they have on the team right now. So uh, he wasn't very happy about that. I, I don't think they're going to be able to trust, as of right now at least. It's only four games into a season, but pretty rough showing for Franco Miller. Same thing for Carlos Curry. Uh, I think that was pretty much who that was directed at. Bryce Williams didn't necessarily play very well last night, but he's been okay uh, through the first three games of the season, I, I don't know why I keep saying four. They've only, or yeah, four other three games of the season. They had a four-game homestand that they closed out last night, but uh, I think it was mainly directed at those two. But yeah, not not good for the last eight nine minutes of the game. I think Kermit caught it about as embarrassed as he's been since he's been a coach at Ole Miss. 
But at the same time, he was very clearly sending a message to some guys. Yeah, I think uh, there were some guys that were on the fourth end of the game last night that aren't going to be Ole Miss Rebels next year unless they uh, they had a spike in improvement. So um, it really didn't seem like he was too happy with it. Like, yeah, he, he singled out the guys with you know that were on the floor at the end of the game, but it really didn't feel like he was happy with his whole team from an offensive standpoint either. Yeah, I mean, I think he's just frustrated about that in general because they've gotten off to, I mean, this is at least three stows, three three slow starts in a row, um, or three out of the four. I don't know if you'd constitute, uh, I, I'm now blanking on their second opponent. Oh, God. Uh, uh, Norfolk. Yeah, I don't know if you'd constitute that as, I mean, it was a little bit of a slow start and then they hit like a 12-13-2 run with a smaller lineup that got him up big. Uh, they didn't really create much separation. Uh, Arkansas State definitely a little bit of a slow start. They're not a very good team on the uh, offensive end of the floor right now, particularly in the half court offense. I mean, he talked again for. I mean, it seems like every. I mean, I think he said this to some degree at every game, but the ball sticks. They don't move it very well. Uh, doesn't see multiple sides of the floor more than once. Uh, a lot of dribbling, not very good spacing. They, uh, they just aren't a very good team in the half-court offense right now. I think he is frustrated with that. I do think he believes that uh, a lot of that will be rectified with Blake Henson back, who I guess we kind of buried the lead there. He said after the game, Blake will play limited minutes uh, against Memphis. They hope to uh, they hope to get him back Thursday at practice. They have a mandatory off day today that he'll uh, he'll work out on his own. He didn't seem to really know how, how good a shape Blake was in. I'm not sure how much of an issue that's going to be because he's been practicing and doing stuff. Just whatever whatever the the side effect, I don't know, side effects is the right word, but whatever it is with that blood irregularity, he hasn't been cleared for contact uh, for the last couple of months. So it's not like he's been idle and not doing anything, but he just hasn't been able to go through a full contact practice. So uh, he didn't seem to know how much conditioning would be an issue. I imagine they'll have a better idea of that uh, after today and uh, and Thursday when they practice together as a team. But that's a big boost for them, and he seems to, uh, Kermit seems to think that would probably help them a bit, uh, quite a bit offensively, because that's a, I mean, at this point, he is kind of a veteran guy. He played a full season of college basketball, which, you know, in this day and age, if you have one season under your belt, you're a pretty experienced guy. And it's just, I mean, having him on the floor next to Buffin when, particularly when they go at that smaller lineup or whether they do without it you could play Blake at the three and KJ at the four uh, I mean it's just two more guys that know how to run offense and and if I guess kind of been there before and he's also a leadership voice on a team that's still trying to sort it out so I mean I think it's fairly clear at this point defense is going to be this team's calling card but they're going to have to get better on the offensive end of the floor particularly in half court offense because they're about to get an uptick in competition and if they aren't better offensively they're going to get punched in the mouth Oh, yeah. I mean, and he said that. I mean, they're going to have to be a lot better offensively or they're going to have to start winning games in the 50s because this uh, this stagnant ball movement on in half-court offense is not going to play um, against upper echelon teams and teams that are probably a little bit more athletic than they are. So, um, Kermit was not happy in his press conference last night to have, you know, had a 28-point lead with 11 minutes left in the game. So, they're going to find out Saturday. Uh, I don't figure practice on Thursday and Friday is going to be real fun. Yeah, I, I, he, he talked. He's, he's mentioned the whole win. He, he keep. He said a couple times. I told these guys get ready to win some games in the fifties and sixties because you don't execute offensively. Uh, I think that's not a veiled threat, but I, I think he's saying that a little bit. I, I don't know the right phrase here. It's not facetiously or tongue in cheek. I think he's saying that he's a little, saying it a little condescending. Yeah, a little bit condescending and sarcastically because he full and well knows that they're not going to be able to do that. If they're not better offensively, they're not like they're a good good they're a better defensive team than they were last year. They're probably trending towards good, but to do that against the competition they're going to play in the SEC, you have to be elite defensively and they're not even close to that. So he's yeah, it's a little condescending, it's a little sarcastic because he knows that they're not at least a marginally better on the offensive end and half-court offense. Like they they're not going to win games that way. So he's just yeah, he's just kind of Look, you don't have Brian Tyree, Devontae Shuler, K.J. Buffin playing like he is, and you're not able to score the basketball. I figure, like you said, they'll get it rectified by the time January is here. Yeah, but it's just a matter of is it good, is it good enough? Because you have three of those four guys you mentioned on the floor right now. You have two all-SEC caliber guards. 
and it's just not working. But, I mean, look, you're four games into a season. You, you know, you're still trying to work things out. It's probably going to get better, but I, I would say there's at least a, a, a pretty slight cause. I, I mean, I'd say there's a little bit more than a slight cause for concern for them with the way they're playing offensively because if that continues, they're, they're going to be in a world of trouble. Sure, but Schuler and Brian and, and KJ have all played pretty well offensively from a numbers perspective, haven't they? Yeah, they're just still not scoring points collectively. It hasn't been good enough. I mean, you can have guys get points individually and kind of get theirs, and it's still not be. I mean, just I mean, you could. There's five, six, seven examples on a nightly basis in the NBA like that. They're going to have to be a better team offensively. They're going to have to run better offense. I mean, they don't really screen anybody. They don't cut very well, and they don't move the move without the basketball very well. I guess that's kind of one and the same with cutting. They don't move the ball well either. I mean, you can have guys get points and create shots. And, you know, you can have three, four guys with 15, 20 points, and that's still not be enough. Because at the end of the day, you know, when you need a basket offensively, like, you're going to have to run good offense. Like, you get, you're not going to be able to, particularly in college basketball, just solely rely on guys creating shots over the last three, four minutes of a game. It's not like an NBA playoff game. Like, you're going to have to be better on that end of the floor, particularly half-court offense-wise, because that's going to kill them late in games. Yeah. Um, I think, too, and, and I don't know if this is something that, what am I trying to say? I don't know if this is a talent issue or what it is. They are missing a ton of good looks from three right now. I mean, they're a decent shooting basketball team. You have a lot of guys. They don't have a lights-out kind of no-help guy. You have to run with him wherever he goes type of shooter on this team. They just don't have it. But they have three or four pretty good to decent three-point shooters. I think Blake will help that a little bit when he gets back. I think it's just a product. There are times, one, they need to take better three-point shots. I mean, Bree and Tyree last night took three or four that were NBA range three-point shots. And that's, as Kermit kind of described it, I thought this was a good way to describe it, that's one you take when you're kind of on a heat check and you've made three or four shots in a row and you're trying to take a kill shot at somebody. But you don't try to get going in terms of being a shooter and trying to get in a rhythm from 24, 25, 26 feet away from the basket. So, like, they're a decent three-point shooting team, but it seems like a lot of times there's shot selection when it is. Like, just because it's an open shot doesn't necessarily mean it's a great shot. And so a lot of these, a lot of times the threes and the perimeter jump shots they're taking are quote-unquote open, but they're not good shots within the confines of the offense and what they're trying to do. And I think that's why you're leading to a lot of misses. So, I mean, I think that's eventually going to even itself out. I don't think they're going to shoot 4 of 17 or whatever they shot last night. Or, honestly, whatever they're shooting right now at the same clip the entire year. But they're going to help themselves immensely by taking better shots. Because that's a large part of it. And I think that's kind of, uh, if you're looking for the best example of that, I think it's Brian Tyree and his shot selection from 3 this year so far. He hasn't taken very good 3-point shots. Like, they need to be step-in shots. They need to be him kind of getting loose in transition, not him dribbling into a 25-footer, you know, with, you know, 18 to 20 seconds left in the shot clock. I think it's a big shot selection thing right now, coupled with the fact that they're really just not making them, but I think they're going to help themselves if they take better shots. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, and, and let, let, look, I mean, Kermit said after the game he expects Blake to help with that. Blake was... Really good last year as a freshman, and, and I figure he'll have a really good sophomore year. Uh, I think he could have a have a jump like KJ Buffett had so far. Who, you know, we, we talked a lot about KJ playing extremely well to start the season. I'm not sure it's worrisome, but he's not kind of had the production over the last two games that I guess you probably want uh, from him. I guess some of that's getting in a little bit of early foul trouble. Yeah, so he's gotten in foul trouble the last two games. He kind of navigated through it some last night. Um, he did. He came in as a top 30 rebounder in the country. His rebounding percentage was something astronomical. I'll have to check after this to see what it ended at. But he's uh, he's, he's getting it done on the glass. He's obviously scoring well. But, yeah, he's he's he got driven out a couple times last night where he just kind of let the guy go right by him. And then he's getting into foul trouble. Uh, he had a – I'm not sure. I mean, I, I like KJ. He's a little bit of a quiet guy. Uh, yeah. I think he's still kind of learning the whole media circuit thing. But he had a uh, – he had quite the head-scratching logic when asked about the foul trouble last night. He said, and I quote, that's just me being dumb. i got to stay away from dumb fouls. Uh, a guy fouled me, so I felt like I had to foul him back. That's just me being dumb. And I was kind of double-taked. I was like, wait a minute, what? Like, what What are you talking about? So, yeah, I don't really know what he was trying to get at there. Maybe he was kind of partially, like, tongue-in-cheek joking. I don't know. He said it very deadpan, but I, uh, I definitely was not following there. I didn't quite understand what that meant. 
Um, but yeah, they're, they, him getting in foul trouble is going to be to the detriment of Ole Miss, and I think that's a fairly obvious statement there. But they really can't afford to have that become a trend. They need him on the floor, and him being confined to the bench uh, for extended stretches of time, particularly when they get in games of consequence, is going to force them to trust guys that I don't think Kermit fully trusts at this point. So they need him on the floor, and they need him to play without fouling. You know, minor concern through four games, but. You know, he's been okay for the most part. But, yeah, he had to navigate through some early foul troubles last night. I think he actually in the second half, or particularly late in the first half, early in the second half, did a decent job of playing with foul trouble and kind of not letting it increase and getting that third and fourth foul and really having to sit for long periods of time in the second half. But uh, he's going to have to shy away from getting those dumb early fouls. So that was another note I had last night. Another one, Brian Tyree had five early assists in the first half. You're only four games into the season, of course, but his, his assist numbers are up a tick from last year. He was right around two a game last year, a little over two a game. He had five in the first, like, 15 minutes of the game last night. Um, he's, I think, after last night out, to add it in, about four at four a game. Um, you know, small sample size, but I think he's distributing the ball better, and I think that's going – this, this, this backup point guard thing hasn't really fleshed itself out yet between um, – between Franco Miller and Bryce Williams. And so I, I think Kermit is going to be more, I guess, less reluctant to play Brian Tyree at the one than he was a year ago. So I, I think that's potentially going to be a pretty good option for them when Schuler has to leave the floor is that Tyree can play point guard, whereas last year everything really offensively just kind of went to shit when he had to play point guard. And that wasn't as much about – that wasn't really any fault of his own but more so just how the team was constructed. I think they're a little better equipped to handle that this year, but I think that's a very viable option until this backup point guard thing kind of fleshes itself out because, again, Franco Miller and Bryce Williams really haven't taken the reins to that job yet. Yeah, like you said, uh, the offense was a crap last year after uh, Schuler came off the floor, so it's, it's good to see Brian get into, getting, it, getting into distributing the ball a little bit better than probably he did last year. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Schuler can't play 40 minutes a game, but the problem is I don't really know how many minutes you can put Bree in a point. I mean, Bree's got to have his reps too, so it's kind of a little bit of a tricky situation. Yeah, I mean, you'd like to have them on the floor as t- together as much as possible, but there are ways to stagger their minutes where one of them's on the floor at one time and one of them's on the other. But, they, I mean, it's not like they couldn't survive a four-and-a-half to six-minute stretch with Bryce Williams or Franco Miller at point guard. But, I mean, you do have that threat there to where, like, I mean, like, Franco Miller in the limited action he's gotten this year has been bad enough to where you really might not make it to the next, next media timeout with, like, coughing up a 6-7 point lead. So, I mean, they could get through it, but, like, if you're in a tight conference game in the second half and those guys are continuing to play the way they're playing right now, like, you're going to bet that he's going to find a way to stagger their minutes and keep Breen on the floor because I don't think he fully trusts them yet. But, again, you're you're – a handful of games into the season that's you know, a lot of time for that to change and for those guys to progress but as of right now that's at least kind of a, a safety valve option for them until one of these guys I guess improves and kind of take takes a hold of this backup gig um, really aside from that I, I, I didn't gather a whole lot from this game last night I mean it was a Tuesday night game against Seattle uh, they turned it over a bunch um, they did a, I think they I'm pulling it up right now they had a pretty significant rebounding margin a lot of that was had to do with Seattle basically played five guards and ran five out motion and just kind of lived to kind of create their own jump shots amongst those five guys. It was a uh, it was a very like what what they faced last night is not like anything they're going to face off from a half court offense standpoint uh, really anywhere in the SEC. But again, they just didn't really play well the last eight minutes. Uh, I think Kermit was kind of trying to prove a point. They turned it over four times in the last six minutes. They didn't score in the last two fifteen. Excuse me, they only had one basket in the last, what, about six minutes of the game. It was uh, it was pretty rough to end the game, but all in all, I mean, not really any reason to panic. K.J. Buffin grabbed eight rebounds. Tyree had six and five assists. And, yeah, that was really about all I took from that game last night. I don't think Seattle's going to win whatever league they're in. They were okay. Uh, they really had trouble getting shots up themselves. I mean, they shot, even with that run towards the end of the game, they were just too small for really to be able to do anything against Ole Miss offensively. I mean, I think they were 16 of 56 from the field. Um, 
they had something ridiculous. Right? I think they only had. Make sure I have this right. Yeah, they were seven to twenty-eight from the field in the first half. They just weren't long enough. Like they, they were way too small for to really do anything against Ole Miss in the first half. I mean, they were seven to twenty-eight from the field and three of nine from three in the opening half. If Ole Miss had actually could put, if Ole Miss had actually kind of put the hammer down and Kermit hadn't have done what he done in the last three minutes, I'm not sure Seattle gets to thirty-five points. Yeah, like I said, uh, the people that laid Ole Miss minus seventeen and a half, not big fans of Kermit this morning. Yeah, and he was saying he was kind of fighting his better judgment on the sideline, but literally just letting it happen. I think he was literally just standing there, like confirming this is why the guys, kind of ha- the guys that are on the floor, have the role that they do right now. Um, you know, Kermit kind of has a way of doing that. Last year, he really loved to use the bench as punishment. He's done, I think, less of that this year, uh, probably because he's got a little bit better team, a little Wait, more. Wait, so did he let like these guys play as punishment? Uh I mean, I, th- I mean, I guess in a way because I mean, whatever, where, whenever they watch film today, uh, you know, Franco Miller, Carlos Curry, you know, Bryce Williams are probably not going to have the best time. So I guess in a way, but I mean, this really is like if you know, if he ever has one of, I'm not saying one of those three guys is necessarily going to bitch about anything, but if one of the reserve kind of fringe guys becomes unhappy with the role they have, like you're probably just going to pop in the Seattle tape and be like, hey, be quiet. <laughs> Yeah, Chief, this is this is why I can't put you on the floor in an SEC game. I do still Austin think there's Crowley a world where they're good, not, man. Yeah, he's uh he's going to be good and they need you talk about it them being kind of devoid of a like heat check lights out shooter. I'm not sure Crowley's it, but if he could be a guy that you the the defense is not necessarily fo- centering a lot of attention to and he could kind of knock down a couple jump shots from the uh or a couple of threes from the wing, that could really be a pretty big asset for them. He was what? Let's see, three of three in twenty-two minutes, and that all those all came in the first half. He had six first-half points, and then I'm not sure actually how much he he only played eight minutes in the second half because uh, he had fourteen in the first half, and then he had a three he had three taken away last night at the buzzer because they're clearly good. Well, so they had. That was kind of a weird deal. So the 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 shot clock, the shot the light, like the light buzzer to signify the end of the shot clock, was not actually synced up with the shot clock. And so while there was one second left on the shot clock, the light went off. And so I think the reason they spent three or four minutes trying to determine that is they didn't really necessarily knew which one took precedent over the other. And I guess the the light ended up taking precedent. But I, I think that was actually a clock issue because when it left his hand, there's one second on the clock, but the light had already gone off. So that was that was kind of a confusing deal there. I, I imagine uh, Keith Carter was sitting behind us in the post game. I imagine they're going, they're probably going to try to get that fixed because that was a uh, that was kind of a confusing yeah. That don't, deal. That doesn't need to happen in an SEC game. Yes, yeah, so, I mean it was it was it was good with the amount of time they had left on the clock, but again the the light wasn't synced up. I'm not sure I've ever actually. Uh, ever actually seen that before but yeah so he would have had nine first half points you know he didn't really play much in the second half um but it's going to be interesting to see what this looks like when they uh when Henson gets back and you're going to see a little bit of that on Saturday because uh, uh, you know kind of one of the pro- not problems but uh one of the I guess things Kermit is wary about with the way they played offensively is this competition is about to take a pretty steep uptick You've got Memphis on Saturday, nationally ranked team. You know, I, I I don't think I'm going out on a limb here. You'll hear Drew talk about it in a second. But, again, as of this recording, I haven't talked to him. I would doubt James Wiseman is going to play. But that's still a team littered with four- and five-star talent. And, but then after that, you take a trip to the Barclays Center. You're going to play Penn State. And then you're going to either play Syracuse or what? I think it's Oklahoma State. And then you come back home for a home game against Butler. So, like, the schedule stiffens up here over the next four or five-game stretch. And, like, look, if they're 2-2 two and two in this next four or five-game stretch, like, they'll be fine. Like, but, I mean, if you don't play well, there's a world where you come back 1-3 and three or 0-4. Oh I don't necessarily think that happens. Um, I don't know a ton about Butler or Penn State in particular. But, like, they're, they're going to have to play better. I say, uh, yeah, for four-game stretch, this is really going to stiffen up. So, um, you're going to kind of figure out, no, I mean, it's late November, not really what this team is made of, but you're going to kind of figure out where they're at over the next week or two as to as far as where they kind of stack up offensively and really where they need to improve. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is 
about as simple as it gets. We're, you're going to find out a lot about this team on Saturday when they go to Memphis, even without James Wiseman. Uh, Memphis is young. They play a ton of freshmen. I think they start literally five freshmen, um, even without Wiseman. So it's, it's a young team. Ole Miss is going to be in for a battle on Saturday. And we'll see what uh, we'll see what they're made of over the next week and a half, two weeks. I mean, you got you got Memphis and you got Penn State. You have who's a good team, by the way. And then you have either Oklahoma State or Syracuse, and then Butler rolls into the pavilion. So uh, it's about to get real for this team. Yeah, it is. And then when Henson comes back, as far as like I got asked a question on the radio show, kind of what that means for other guys' minutes. I think that just means. Um, I don't necessarily know what that means. Like, does does he just kind of straight up and come in at the three and take Luis Rodriguez's place? As far as like I am, like Hadim C and Sammy Hunter's minutes will probably take a little bit of a dip because they'll have the ability to play that smaller lineup. But I am interested to kind of find out what the trickle down effect is of Henson's return. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I'd be probably a little bit surprised if he started on Saturday. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I imagine there'd have to be some sort of limits restriction, or minutes restriction, excuse me. Um, so I'll be interested to kind of find out what that looks like beginning this Saturday. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like they'll get 10 to 15. I don't think they'll overexert him, but I mean, they got to get him out on the floor and get him ready to go, too. Yeah, so that was really about all I had from Hoops last night. Uh, 4-0 on the year to start the uh, season. They closed up a four-game homestand. As I mentioned, they're about to go on the road. And then they kind of come back for their you know, leading into Christmas swing or through Christmas swing where they play four home games in like 22 days or something like that. It's that weird part of the year where they go like seven days without a game, seven days without a game, and then eight days without a game. So... And then, really, after that, it's you go. You have a road game at Wichita State, and then it's SEC play is uh, SEC play is here. So, um, should it's it's kind of coming down. I mean, it, it, conference play will be here before you know it. So, anyway, uh, I'll be at the I'll be at FedEx Forum on Saturday. We'll have coverage at SuperTalk.fm uh, and all that. Uh, take a quick break. Tell you the podcast brought to you by LB's University Avenue, across from Kroger. Uh, LB's Greg. Best place in Oxford to go get meat. Well, the LB's pick'em results here in uh here in a minute. But go see Greg University Avenue across from Kroger. They've got daily specials. If you're looking for something to eat, they've always got really really good plate lunches. I'd recommend going in and trying some of that. Maybe go in and get some lunch and then decide what you're going to put on the grill for dinner. Steaks, custom cuts, sausages, all kinds of delicious stuff. Best place in Mississippi to get meat without a doubt. Go see Greg University Avenue across from Kroger. I don't know whether to tell you to go demand locks or not because I don't know the results. We'll get to that in a second, but go see him. Uh, there was football availability last night. I did not go because um, Kyle text Kyle Campbell texted us at five twelve that interviews were at five twenty five. Uh, Kyle, uh, apparently they had some kind of text misfire where the text or whatever didn't go through. Um, so yeah, um, they had Jack Bicknell Jr., Eli Johnson, and Willie Hibbler. So I'm sure there was a really lot of electric dynamite content from that. Um, but by week... Yeah, I mean, look, man, I, I don't really know what what people want as far as football coverage at this point because, like, I mean, to me, it seems like the give-a-shit meter is about as low as it, it can go without breaking or flatlining. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's not great right now. Um, I, don't keep your old mess. You just... For, for media availability, you just send out the freshmen all the time. That's what I did. I just send out all the young kids. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw Plumlee was on Fine Bomb yesterday, which, not to be disrespectful for for a world renowned radio personality that kind of has a cult following, the, the the interview questions were just about as generic and, and, and predictable as possible. I could have not listened to that interview and guessed the questions they're going to ask. Guess what? He asked about the two sports. Guess what? He asked about how he got to Ole Miss, and guess what? He asked about him playing piano, and then asked him what he doesn't do well. Shocker. I guess there was some news from Monday's press conference. Didn't Matt talk about the baseball thing? Yeah, so I guess we can get into that some, too. Let me finish roasting Feinbaum. I thought it was a pretty shitty interview. I thought, uh, I thought, uh, I thought Pummy, of course, I mean, that kid, he's like the kid your mom wishes you were. He handled himself well. But, like, but, like, at one point in the – I don't know if you caught this, but at one point I just happened – I had about 20 minutes at my house 
uh, to spare before I went into the studio for radio yesterday, and it just happened to be on. And like, he asked like three, four generic questions. And at the end of it, he goes, "Wow, like John, you're really just blowing me away with these answers." And like, kind of like, 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 like giggles, and like as if he's like flirting with it. And I'm like, "What the hell is going on here?" And, and I don't know. Fogbomb kind of weirds me out sometimes. But anyway, the, uh, the Fogbomb tweet that uh, Tua had died at war basically was uh, was something else too. Yeah, I read that on Monday show. It's like he had gotten sent off to like Nam or something. Like it. it <laughs> yeah. Like I, anyway. I don't get it, man. Like I'm not ever going to watch Paul Fogbomb on purpose. Look, I know he's a talented guy. He's a respected journalist, and he's done more in you know, a third of his career than I'll probably ever do. I'm really not trying to discredit the guy. But I think the radio show sucked. It bores me to tears. Yeah. I don't really know. what. Like Maybe there are people, there has to be people that watch it, but I, I'm just not one of them. I, and maybe, I don't know. It, it, it's just not something that entertains people, or me at least, at all. I don't get the whole radio caller perspective thing. Like, I don't really get what callers add to a radio show. I know you're trying to get engagement. I kind of like what we do with the text line. And then there's some cases where it's kind of funny where, like, people prank call Mike Francesa and stuff like that. But, like, Feinbaum takes a ton of callers, doesn't really give a ton of opinion. And I just don't get really adds to the show. Because, like, when's the last time you've been, like, you know, Bill from Muscle Shoals? Like, that's a great point, man. Like, I, I just I don't understand it. Like, it, it doesn't seem to add anything. So... How does the how does the text line work with y'all? Does it just like show their number and their opinion? Yeah, I mean we have a. It, it took me a year and like two months working at SuperTalk to actually figure out how to access the text line. Uh, so I kind of I now look at it like once a month now. But yeah, I mean it's just pulled up and you have people texting in throughout and like it just shows their phone number. Like a, like if somebody goes back in if you tell them that, like if you text your name with it a lot of times like if Borky's thinking about it they'll save it or if it's like a habitual texter but yeah I mean it just comes up like a text message feed basically uh, uh, that's actually not a bad idea because they're not taking away from the show with their voice right and then you can read the good ones and the dumb ones and the illegible ones you uh, you can just kind of uh, you can just kind of ignore but yeah anyway I don't understand fine Bob yeah there was some news coming out of uh, coming out of the press conference yesterday so I was a little confused with what Matt Luke was kind of trying to say, but he did say he does expect John Rice Plumbing to go through, uh, go through. He expects him to be at spring practice, and I imagine he wanted to add in some capacity. Um, he said he has not talked to Mike since uh, since John Rice Plumbing came became quote the guy. So I guess them. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember two weeks ago when they were calling this a two quarterback system, and then he just called John Rice the guy. That's obvious at this point, right? I mean, yeah, but it is just kind of funny that, like, just openly being like, yeah, we were selling you a crock of shit. <laughs> I mean, he called, in, he called in the guy yesterday two weeks, 14, 13 days removed from being like, yeah, this is a two-quarterback thing. <laughs> really? Less than that? It was after New Mexico State. It was like 10 yeah, days ago. New Mexico State. This is their two starting quarterbacks. So, man, all those people, like people that work at that university, must think their fan base and media that cover it are just absolute morons. Uh, yeah, see the way the chancellor was announced, man. That's like, what I'm saying. No, they, they no kidding. That the people that support that university and the media that cover it are just the dumbest humans on the planet. Yeah, they do. And I, it, it'll never cease to baffle me. But anyway, so he says he hasn't had a conversation with Mike, but doesn't anticipate him at being at spring practice. I kind of tweeted that out because I thought it was an interesting quote. And then I had a ton of people respond being like, and I was a little bit in this camp thinking just kind of naively in the first place, but a ton of people responded like, no, he won't. He's playing baseball. He wants to play baseball. Like, those are the rules. Like, well, there really aren't any rules to this. Like, he could go to spring practice and then go play baseball. Like, there, there are no laws set in stone here. Will Mike Bianco be happy about that or allow that? I don't know. Um, I'm still tend to side in the camp that this probably isn't going to be an issue come like April, but that's just a hunch. Um, but th- there aren't any rules as to like he can't go to the football side during baseball season. That, like that's, that's not that I'm aware of. That's not like a, a rule. No, Kyle Murray did both. Um, I think he does both. I just I think he's got a chance start over there on the baseball field and if he's starting is he really going to walk away from baseball and go play spring football 
I'm also not 100% convinced that spring football is going to have the impact that a lot of people think it has. What do you mean, man? Like that, I mean, it certainly helped some guys on that team last year, and if your quarterback in spring ball is Ken K. Dent, you're probably going to be in a world of trouble. Okay, I think I think, I think think that's actually a fair point. I think it might help some other people more than it actually helps John Wright Plumpkin. I, I don't think he's going to grow. I think the time for him to grow uh, as a passer and, and from what he needs to get better at, I don't think it comes to spring practice. I think it comes over the summer when he's out working out, throwing to receivers. I think... I think if I'm them, I don't let him go play summer baseball, but I don't really believe that spring practice is going to help him all that much from a vertical passing game. I disagree a little bit because, one, you're a freshman quarterback coming off. I mean, he's only played one season of college football and not even a full season of that. Two, you need your starting quarterback at spring practice, like no matter the age. Like that's building a rapport with the receivers. That's kind of further learning the scheme because I imagine there's portions of the passing game that he probably isn't like Grichard isn't comfortable implementing right now, just because I don't think he's in, like give, like throwing at him too much to handle. So I, I think, I mean, it's a month and a half of practice and a scrim and a couple of scrimmages. I think that's going to help a young developing quarterback immensely, rather than I, I throwing, rather than throwing against air too. in the summer. Here's what I wonder: How are you going to tell him that he can't go play baseball, but you tell Jerrion Ely that he can? That's I'm not saying they're going to do that, but I think him being at spring practice is definitely important because, I mean, him throwing against air in a t-shirt all summer long is probably less valuable than him actually doing it in a close to a game setting as possible in spring practice. Sure. I'm not not saying it doesn't help. I just don't know how much he's really going to get that much better over spring. Like, I, I, I really don't put much value into spring practice like at all. But it's going to help more than him literally throwing in a t-shirt against no defense in the summer. I I guess. I don't really know. I I just... Maybe it's just me. The spring practice just kind of seems mundane and pointless. I don't know, man. It... it, it, I mean... We've seen guys play well in the spring all the time and then don't get on the field on the ball. Yeah, I mean, sure, but you can play well in the spring, and that like, that, but that doesn't necessarily like Lynn Credence said that it's pointless. I mean, that's a that's a month and a half of team practices. Like, are you trying to say that they're going to they're going to get more out of working out individually in the summer than they are a month and a half? No, of I season? just don't think it matters to the point that he needs to quit baseball and go play football. Like, I don't think that it's worth giving up baseball when you're going over there for fifteen practices with a with a. I, I just don't think you're getting much out of that, and, and that's why I don't think they're going to break his sir. He's going to just give up baseball to go do that. Now, is there a scenario where he goes and practices seven or eight of the spring practices and maybe plays in the Grove Bowl? Yeah, I think that's possible. I just don't think this kid's going to give up two months of baseball to go play, you know, play in a meaningless Grove Bowl. Yeah, I guess, but I think they would be immensely more out of that than like a summer workout like over the course of that. I mean... You talk to any coach in the country, like they wouldn't do spring ball and they wouldn't keep moving it up earlier and earlier and earlier if it didn't help. It's kind of the same thing with teams taking shitty bowl games. Like those 15 practices and actually having practice settings certainly help. I'm just in the camp that I think he ends up probably being a bench guy on the baseball team and deciding, hey, actually to hell with this, I forgot I was a starting SEC quarterback. Yeah, I mean, if he's, if he's the sixth outfielder and his only bench running, sure. Um, I just think from what I kind of saw in fall ball that most of those guys have fancies to play. Yeah, but I don't really think anyone knows what Plumlee is baseball-wise. I mean, even trying to figure out... He's an outfielder. No, I, I, mean, I got that. I just meant, like, skill skill level-wise and, like, how good he actually is is kind of my point. Yeah, I mean, but do you know what really most true freshmen are in baseball? Like, I mean, he's extremely athletic. They're going to throw his ass in center field. I, I fear he's a pretty good defender. Now, can he hit his weight? I have no clue. Um, I'm I'm interested if he does play baseball and if he hey, that outfield has got a lot of openings. So my, I guess my point would be if he's not on the field rather quickly, I'm I'm with you that he goes and plays football um, and probably gives up the baseball thing because, like we said, I mean, or like I said, that there's a lot of openings in that outfield right now. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I um, I'm sure Mike Bianco took. Uh, Matt Luke say he expects him at spring practice very well, very calmly, and very rationally, as he does with most things. Um, hope Mike's doing well. It's been a while since I've seen him. 
Uh, you, you didn't you didn't make it out there this fall, did you? No, because I mean most of them were while we're doing radio. That one of the two of the Saturday scrimmages were road games, I believe, or one was an off weekend. So, um, I mean, it, it wasn't like a concerted effort not to go out there. It really, I just Bob was a little upset. Yeah, he he was with not not just me. Uh, apparently, a, a little bit, uh, quite a few of the people not going out there in coverage. I uh, I had a legitimate excuse. I, I again afternoon radio kind of takes precedent over anything else we do. Uh, at this company, and then, like, I mean, no offense, Mike, on my first bye week of the year, you know, through nine weeks of a season, uh, I'm not going to, like, sacrifice any other plans I had on my off weekend to come watch them play Arkansas Tech. <laughs> oh, you'll hear about that in Um, I guess one housekeeping note, and then we'll get to the pick and then I got to call, uh, I got to call Drew, uh, Drew Hill. Um, Mike Smith has been placed on administrative leave. They're conducting an external audit of the softball program. I really don't have any other details for you outside of that. Um, trying to think. Yeah, no, not right now. Um, Ruben Felix is the interim head coach, and I think there's a possibility he at least starts the season as the head coach. I do too, and he loves Ole Miss, so if you're looking at a possibility oh, of getting a permanent job, we might see. When do they play state? When's the Egg Bowl on dirt? Well, you know, sometimes they don't play state softball. It's not a, it's not a given thing. So what what happens there? Um, uh, he, For Ruben Felix's sake, they better hope they play state. Uh, maybe we could have, like, the the starting uh, starting pitcher for state get a minor injury, Ole Miss wins the game, and then, boom, hand him the gig. Ruben's a good dude. I hope they do well. Me, but, uh, me too. He uh, loves the school. Um. So anyway, are you are you making that up, or are you just are you just being a jackass? I'm just being a jackass. Uh, I don't know if you like actually knew he loved the school. I, I'm sure he doesn't hate the place that employs him. I'm sure he thinks Oxford's a fine place. But uh, you know, with the way coaching things go these days, if there does an opening come available, I'm mostly kidding. I have no idea what the deal is with my. Yeah, if, if there's an opening coming available, they're almost either going to hire the interim or. Be hire hire a person that wins the Mississippi State. Yeah, I mean, if there's an opening though, if they uh, if it uh, I mean, if Felix's offense performs pretty well this year, he might become OC for Luke. So I guess we'll have That's to a good point. keep That's an a eye good on point. that. Um, so what's the what's the results? How did everything go? Um, I have the, the total results. I'm pulling it up right now. Let's see. Uh, I think I went nine and six. You went ten and five, and Greg went ten and five. Yeah. So overall, I am seventy-four and eighty-four. You are seventy-three and eighty-five, and Greg is sixty-eight and fifty-one. Greg is back to killing Cunicum. There we go. So go to LB's University Avenue, cross from Kroger, demand some meat and demand some gambling locks. Uh, Greg can help you out with both. Best place in Oxford to get meat, steaks, custom cuts, daily specials, all kinds of sales going on. Go see him, University Avenue, cross from Kroger, LB's best place in Mississippi to get meat. Um, that's about all I had for today, I think. Um, kind of a clunker of a Monday night football game. I mean, the the, the uh, Phillip Rivers did not play very well. He seems a little bit washed. The turf sucked, and the Chiefs still aren't very good. Yeah, I, I don't think either of those teams, as much as I wish I was wrong, um, is contending for the AFC title this year. Uh, the Chiefs, for whatever reason, just can't get it together. I, I know they won the game, but... I don't think that team's going to Foxborough and winning either. No, their defense is awful, and their offensive, or I, I say that, their defense did force four turnovers, but that's kind of more of a product of Phil Rivers. Their run defense is horrendous, and two, their offensive line hasn't been very good, and that's a really yeah. tough combo to have, particularly winning in playoff football. Um, yep. Yeah. They're a peg behind every. I'm putting, like, to me, even with Mahomes, they're still in the middling kind of pile of, not crap, but pile of averageness in the AFC. Like to me, it's Baltimore, it's it's uh, New England, maybe Houston if they get it right, and then really just kind of everyone else. Like I, I view I view Kansas City in the same lens as I do like um, as like Indianapolis and Oakland and uh, all, a couple of these other kind of middling teams. So AFC not very good. No, no. Um, the Ravens and the Pats are about it as far as it can uh, it can win that that conference. Anyway, that's about all I've got for today. We'll be back at it with Mailbag Friday, the People's Holiday. But uh, I'll holler at you in this interview. But I am uh, I am about to call Drew Hill. He covers Memphis hoops for the Daily Memphian. So let's go.
All right, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is Drew Hill. He covers uh, Memphis Tigers basketball for the Daily Memphian. Um, you can find him at dailymemphian.com, I believe, and then on Twitter at Drew. What is your Twitter handle? Sorry, I have that in front of me. It's Drew Hill underscore DM. Perfect. Well, dude, I appreciate you taking a, a minute out of your day to uh, to chat with us for a little bit. I know it's uh, it's been kind of a hectic couple of weeks. Um, I guess we'll start... Uh, Wiseman stuff aside, just give me a couple initial impressions of this basketball team so far through a handful of games. Sure, they've been uh, a little up and down so far, obviously. Um, James Wiseman makes a big difference whether or not he's in the lineup. He kind of changes the entire dynamic of the team. Um, They played several games in the Bahamas this summer without Wiseman and without Precious Achua, who's their other five-star recruit. And they looked great in those games, but to be honest, the competition was just not not really there. And then um, they played two exhibition games before the season where they have Precious Achua, but still no James Wiseman, and they really, really struggled to rebound in those games. They play with kind of an undersized team. Um, when he's not on the floor a lot of the time. Um, and so then they go into the regular season. They get Wiseman on the floor. They look great in their first two games. Um, and, and then they lose a, a game at Oregon where Wiseman was in big-time foul trouble, um, and so was Achua, their other star player. And so um, it's been kind of a roller coaster so far. And then they've played – now one game since that Oregon loss, and they, they won that game pretty handily against Alcorn State, who isn't, wasn't a, a great opponent, um, and they looked much better rebounding. They looked much more organized in that, in that game than they did in the Oregon game, but in, in general, um, and we don't think Wiseman's going to be available for the Ole Miss game. The, the team just looks totally different. So I, I guess we'll just kind of get into it for a second before we get into the game. With the the entire Wiseman saga, obviously, it was kind of not a Friday news dump, but it happens at kind of a weird time because, if I'm not mistaken, fairly late on a Friday afternoon. I, I guess the one main question I have, and I think a lot of people who haven't, I guess, followed it from as closely as someone that covers Memphis basketball or follows Memphis basketball would, is the strategy has in this has been interesting to me because you know most people listening to this show are well versed in NCAA investigations and kind of the 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 clown clown court whatever you want to call it type of deal it can be i was interested in the fact that memphis did what you're kind of supposed to do and really missouri and Ole miss are kind of the last schools to actually cooperate with the ncaa which if you cooperate with the corrupt system it, it you're only going to get bad results it makes no sense so memphis kind of goes with the you know kind of piss off double birds type of deal but what I was interested in is they, they filed that temporary restraining order. They kind of make that, I guess, hard stance. But did they did they not kind of admit to him getting the money? That's kind of where the the, the disconnect is with me. What is kind of their strategy with that, Ben? Because I know he dropped the lawsuit. Like, what what is kind of their stance on things right now? Right. So the, the whole the problem with all of this is that they have said, um, and, and they have admitted to wrongdoing in this case, um, in, in the eyes of the NCAA. Now, whether it's moral wrongdoing or not, um, that's for whoever whoever is looking at the situation to be the judge. But um, in this case, they said that they have been up, up front and clear with the NCAA since May about what what took place between Penny Hardaway and James Wiseman, which was when Penny Hardaway was a high school coach before anyone knew he was going to be the Memphis coach, he gives money to James Wiseman's mother for moving expenses. You know, they, they bring up this law. The whole reason this lawsuit started was because they originally ruled James Wiseman eligible. And they, even though they said they did it by error, they ruled him eligible a long time ago, over the summer. And so further investigation has basically made them say, oh, well, we changed our mind. And Memphis does not like that. And Memphis, as a school, feels very picked on by the NCAA. So they decide to, you know, take the, the legal route, at least briefly, and file this restraining order. Um, and so it, it, by filing this restraining order, which now they are cooperating, but by filing this restraining order, 
they felt like this is going to hurry up the process. This is going to make the process move more quickly because now they can reach a negotiated result, even though they won't tell you that, with an NCAA, with, with the NCAA, and hopefully it will come soon enough. Um, and so where, where the situation is now is basically Memphis is just waiting. I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario where Wiseman drops this lawsuit and stops playing if they don't have some sort of idea of what the future is going to be. For example, he sits out five to six games, and they vacate the two games that he played in um, with the restraining order. You know, And so that's probably where we stand. Um, there's Penny Talk yesterday. He said there's no time frame for when the resolution will come. They don't know exactly what the resolution will be. But I think that it's fair to say that the school has a, a general idea of which way this is going, the same way Ohio State did when uh, when they cooperated with the NCAA with, with Chase Young. Okay, so you just kind of cleared up the disconnect with me there. Which, well, I found that interesting. As someone who initially through the first couple of days kind of read a lot of the stuff that you guys wrote and put out on the, on the case, but I got a little bit confused because I believe in that initial NCA statement that they made, which was kind of a bizarre statement in the first place, said that they originally told Memphis that he would be ruled likely like, that he was likely going to be ineligible. But you're saying that actually what they did was they ruled him eligible by by mistake. Like, did, do I have that right? Didn't they come out with a statement that said he was they they had already told Memphis he was likely going to be eligible? So they're basically con- contradicting yes, yes. themselves. Yes, they ruled Wiseman eligible in May, in May, um, and then they said that they did it by error. This is according to Wiseman's attorneys. I should I should point out, according to Wiseman's attorneys, they ruled him eligible in May, um, and then they said that they had ruled him eligible by error, but they were going to honor that ruling, according to his attorneys. And so then they look into the situation further over the summer, and then right before the start of the season, they come back and they say, never mind, you are likely ineligible. And that's when they get their, gave their statement. Yeah, that's so on brand and so incredibly predictable. But I actually, I, I did not, uh, I didn't actually, actually know that. So that, that makes a ton more sense now. As far as Wiseman and Penny and this whole team, what kind of toll has this whole thing taken? Because like when, you know, I mean, when he was in the starting lineup, I believe all five of these freshmen were top 60 kids. Like, there was a hell of a lot of excitement about Memphis basketball. And, you know, when you, you know, when Memphis basketball and good, that entire kind of just city and program has a, a really cool vibe to it, in my opinion. Uh, what kind of toll has that taken on this? It seems like it may have put a damper on things a little bit. Just kind of what has the team's attitude been through all that? Because I don't think there's really any rational person that actually thinks, like, actually cares whether a college basketball player gets money for whatever reason to play basketball, not to play basketball, whatever. So like, I think most people find this incredibly stupid, but to me the NCAA is like, it's like quicksand. Like once you get in, it's incredibly hard to get out because, you know, you're basically operating in a, in a kangaroo court that makes no sense. So they're just incredibly annoying and hard to get to go away. What has kind of been the mindset of the team through all of this? Two mindsets. <laughs> there's one which is the team's mindset, which is basically, you know, look, there's no way to get around it. Penny is very frustrated by the entire situation. He goes into these media availabilities and he just says, we want answers, we want answers, we want answers. He can't say too much because he's worried that it might cause, you know, further delay, of course. And so this team really has other than to just move on. And then... Yes, there's no doubt that this takes some sort of toll on the team. You can see that Penny Hardaway is annoyed in these media availabilities because it's obvious with every answer. You know, he kind of gives this sigh, and you know, yeah, we just we just want to hear. We're just waiting, and the waiting just is so painful. Um, and, and so, the team has no choice but to move on and kind of just do their own thing and figure out how they're going to replace him. And he said they're, they're running 50-50 uh, in terms of practice time. 50% of the time Memphis, or they have Wiseman in there at center. And then 50% of the time they've got their other options, which Wilmots will likely see on Saturday. Um, Lance Thomas and Isaiah Maurice in there at the five. And so they have no choice but to move on. Now the city 
which I know, I know you mentioned, they have a, a totally different mindset. And anyone who's familiar with Memphis knows that this is kind of a town that always feels picked on, and uh, the people are, are very uh, easily stirred up because of that. And I think that there is legitimate frustration, and I know the people felt it in Oxford too towards the NCAA and why they are if they were called petty yesterday by one of the Memphis players, why are they, why they are so petty to the point where it feels like everyone knows what the resolution is going to be for Wiseman and why they can't just come out and say it and why it has to look like this entire process that they're making it look like um, when the answers are likely already there. I know I'm asking you to read the tea leaves on something that's pretty much impossible to read, but have you gotten a gauge at all on kind of when and if they'll expect him back this year? Like, is there any... Because, I mean, the, the way they operate, they can kind of just slow play this thing if they want to, or it can be resolved in two days, you know, a la the Chase Young thing. Like, it, it really just has no rhyme or reason, makes no sense. But do you have any sort of gauge or feel for, will he get time served as far as missing these couple games? Do you have an idea of when this might be resolved? Right. I think everyone in town kind of has this encircled on the schedule, which is the Tennessee game for Memphis. Um, just because that's obviously a game on a national stage where Memphis and everyone would like Wiseman to be playing. It's a huge rivalry game, obviously. Um, so, And the coaches don't like each other, and there are infinity national storylines there. And so everybody kind of has that game circled, which would be a six-game suspension at the most, so if he sits out six games, um, he's already sat out one, that would mean he sits out around five more games, and they'll probably decide by then, I mean, at least you would think so, right? So um, I think everybody kind of has that circled along with, you know, maybe maybe charity that was taken for the moving expenses and potentially vacating those two wins that they had with him in the lineup, not not forfeiting, vacating, which would basically take their overall record from, what, now 3-1? and one? They would go to 1-1 one and one in that case. So that's what I think everyone, everyone is expecting. But when you talk to Penny and you ask these questions around the program, you're not going to get many answers as to exactly what it is because, like you've mentioned, there is no telling with the NCAA. On the court-wise, obviously, I mean, you're missing a 20-10 and 10 guy and kind of, I mean, for the lack of a better cliche, heart and soul type deal. How does that change what they do, particularly offensively on the floor? Yeah, so really the type of offense that they were running with him on the floor was, all right, let's throw it down to James as much as we can and use our shooters on the, on the outside um, and make everybody sort of collapse. And I think that they have to run uh, more sets and sort of things they have when they don't have them in the lineup. Um, the offense doesn't change a ton because you still have Precious Achua who's a, a threat in the paint to score. Um, and it really comes down to whether or not Memphis is making outside shots because they've really struggled to shoot the three through these first few games. And it's not that they don't have the shooters on the team. They clearly do. You can see them in practice and, and whatnot, but you just it hasn't for whatever reason, it has not translated to the game yet. I think it changes a lot. They're going to rotate a couple guys in there to, to make up for his loss. But um, uh, more of an impact on the defensive end with the rim protector. Um, and and he sort of allows for the perimeter on defense, and he can clean them up on the back end. And uh, on offense, the offense was always just thrown into Wiseman anyway. And I think no matter what, the way Memphis is shooting the ball, the, the approach that other coaches are going to take against them is going to be the pack and paint, whether or not Wiseman is in there or not. So I'm not sure how much it changes on the offense then. How do they, how do they view this game in terms of – it's interesting to me because Ole Miss – their, their schedule takes quite the uptick over the next couple of weeks. They're doing the whole Barclays thing. Um, where they're going to get Penn State and then uh, Syracuse or Oklahoma State, and they got a Butler. So that it, they're about to hit a steep kind of uh, uptick in competition. Of course, Memphis has already played Oregon. You know, you've got Tennessee on the schedule. I believe they've got Georgia and NC State as well. Ole Miss looks at this as a pretty good measuring stick game. They're going to get Blake Henson back. 
they think they have a team that can potentially win a game or two in the NCAA tournament. This will be a pretty good gauge of where they're at. How does Memphis kind of view this game against an Ole Miss team that a lot of new pieces, but kind of building off what was a very surprising season last year? Right, I think this game matters um, simply because there are a lot of Ole Miss fans in Memphis, and they would like to beat Ole Miss. But um, without Wiseman in the lineup, it's almost like everybody is like, all right, well, we'll we'll start taking the actual record on the court seriously once he gets back on the floor. Because come Selection Sunday, the committee is going to have a chance to look at that, and they're going to be able to use common sense and say, okay, well, they didn't have James in these games, and then they get they get Wiseman back, and, you know, they look much better with him. And so the attitude changes a little bit without Wiseman in the lineup. Obviously, if he was there, I think it would be considered a, a, a massive game, one of the bigger games of the season. But now, he's the main concern. I mean, there, there's no way around it. Like, what they do on the court, of course it matters, but um, their schedule, which is kind of similar to Ole Miss, they, they're playing in Brooklyn, too, against NC State. Um, if they get James back for the game against Tennessee, like people expect, then, you know, they're looking at two games, Ole Miss and NC State, that they really have a, that they should, they could lose. Um, the other opponents are much more inferior opponents. So even if you go 0-2 in those games, probably not going to kill you come March when they look at the whole body of work and see that you didn't have Wiseman in, in those settings. Ole Miss is a team that I think it's very clear that the defensive end of the floor is going to be a little, their calling card this season. But their struggles, particularly in the half-court offense of the first three or four games, have been been pretty drastic again only a handful of games they're going to get Blake Henson back on Saturday which should help a lot because that's a guy that can play three or four maybe even a little bit of two if he had to and as a guy that kind of knows how to run offense as an experienced guy on a team that's really kind of still trying to find its its voice on that end of the floor you mentioned you know it you know Wiseman being gone is a big impact defensively for Memphis how from your vantage point just how have they played defensively with him out yeah, um, it's, it's tough to gauge because it's been one game, right? And it was right. against Alcorn State. But they look great. I mean, they forced a lot of turnovers this year. They're a team that's definitely going to press a lot of the games. Um, they actually, one of their freshmen, Damian Ball, who was outside of the top 100 in a lot of standards, has been really, really, really surprising this year. It has been um, one of their best players. And if that all starts on the defensive end, this is a guy that's going to. Um, it starts on defense for him. He's, he's a, a good player in transition, um, but he's the sort of in-your-face bulldog type of point guard that every team wants. Um, and so he's been really impressive. Lester Quinones, who's another um, another guard for Memphis, has been really impressive. They've been really good at turning the ball over, and it kind of starts there for them. Um, some of, at, at times, their best offense has been their defense, and so I think they've been pretty impressive without what do you uh what do you make of the american because it's interesting to me that it i mean is it fair to say the league looks i mean it's early in the year but memphis only ranked team so far i don't know what to make of houston cincinnati new coach kind of as this team wades into conference play who do you think kind of their biggest uh i guess competition is uh, uh, in the conference i still think it's houston i know that they lost the game to byu earlier this year Kelvin Sampson is just an excellent coach, and I think Penny has a lot of respect for him and what he's been able to do. And it's funny, at, at AAC Media Days earlier uh, in, in October, Kelvin Sampson was kind of trying to hide behind the weeds a little bit and point at Memphis and say, they're the favorite, they're the favorite. But it felt like absolutely no one else in the conference really wanted to allow him to do that because no matter what team he's got out there on the floor, that guy just seems to find ways to win basketball games. And so um, I would probably point to Houston. Uh, they have Quentin Grimes, obviously, who's a, a Kansas transfer, who's a great, great guard. Um, and then they have uh, Nate Hinton, who came back, who was a really strong player last year. And this is a team that went, I believe, what, all the way to the 2016 and lost to Kentucky in the NCAA tournament. So uh, they should be strong again. I don't – I. Don't buy much into that BYU loss. I think they'll be they'll be a good team by the end of the year. Last thing before I let you go, it's been interesting. You've obviously covered this team as uh, 
as the as they've kind of risen with Penny and and kind of the hype that it's brought, and as someone who you know lives an hour or two away but is very familiar with Memphis, it's like it's almost like a night and day type of thing from when Tubby was on top of the program. Like just from your vantage point, in the short amount of time Benny's been head coach, just like it seems like the breath of life it's kind of breathed into the program is almost immeasurable. I was just kind of curious what that's looked like from your vantage point. Yeah, it's been incredible, and to be honest. Um, I didn't grow up here. I got here when Penny got here, and I've covered the team, you know, really since he took over. And I, I have people come up to me all the time and just tell me that I don't know how lucky I am because when it was Tubby Smith and it was not Penny Hardaway and even going back to some of the Josh Passner years, it just wasn't the same Memphis basketball that it is now. And to be honest with you, this is really the only Memphis basketball that I know. And maybe that's a good thing. Um, but uh, I think, yes, there's no question. Like, you have a pro team here that has John Morant, um, who's super exciting, and Jaron Jackson Jr., who looks like he could eventually become an all-star. And still, the attention. And you have a football team that could be headed to the Cotton Bowl, and still the attention is dramatically more on this Memphis basketball team and on Penny Hardaway than, than any other sport or team in the city. And that's uh, a pretty incredible thing to see. Drew, I appreciate your time. Can't thank you enough. That was uh, great stuff. You can read him at uh, dailymemphian.com, at DrewHill underscore DM on Twitter. Uh, again, I really appreciate it. This was great stuff, and I look forward to seeing you Saturday. Yep, yep. We'll see you there, man. And that was Drew Hill. I really appreciate his time this morning. I uh, thought he gave some pretty interesting insight on the whole James Wiseman deal. Uh, that one particular part where I was confused about, we're talking about where the NCAA gave that real bizarre statement after the Wiseman stuff came out saying that they originally told him he'd be ineligible. Apparently that was not true. Conveniently, the NCAA left out the part that they ruled him eligible by mistake. Uh, maybe that was just an oversight by me, but I did not know that. Anyway, Rub, interested in the game Saturday. Should be a good measuring stick for Ole Miss. Uh, obviously, Memphis is just kind of sur- trying to survive without Wiseman. As Drew mentioned, so should be an interesting game Saturday as Ole Miss kind of gets an uptick in competition, beginning with a really good Memphis team, whether James Wiseman plays or not. I mean, they'll have four starters that are top 60 guys in the country. Um and just a good measuring stick for the Rebels. So, I don't know. I'm looking forward to the game. Should be interesting. We'll have coverage at Supertalk.fm. Podcast will be back on Friday. It'll be Mailbag Friday, the people's holiday. I appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review the podcast. Give us four or five stars. Uh, you can say whatever you want about us in the comments. But, again, get in your questions to mail for Mailbag Friday. Participate in the people's holiday. So, uh, tweet me, text me. Email me, whatever way you can get me your questions, let me know. And we'll be back out on Mailback Friday. Might be looking into doing something a little different with no football game this week, but we'll still have picks, questions, uh, all that normal jazz. So I appreciate you guys listening, and we'll be back at it on Friday. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.